Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, weirdos. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, the strange and bizarre, crime, conspiracy, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. Coming up in this episode... When mine owners cut wages in 1870s Pennsylvania, the Molly Maguires fought back and ultimately won what would become the first labor war in U.S. history, although they had to assassinate a couple dozen people to do it. Numerous cultures have images of being tied to nature, simply called the Green Man. But how can so many different cultures spanning so many years have almost the exact same representation of him. There's a scary urban legend from Spain about a bizarre website that offers you the ultimate horror experience. Apparently, the experience can prove to be lethal. In 1898, reports of a brutal killing surfaced in Ontario, Canada, and it was only then that the settlers finally began to believe what the local Algonquin tribe had been telling them about the Wendigo. The Azores Island chain in the Atlantic is said by sailors to be the site of strange and disturbing events. Some are so spooked by the waters surrounding these islands that they refuse to go there. But first, is it true that Bigfoot has abducted humans and then run off with them? There are numerous stories that seem to back up the idea. If you're new here, welcome to the show. And while you're listening, be sure to check out WeirdDarkness.com for merchandise, my newsletter, to enter contests, to connect with me on social media. Plus, you can visit the Hope in the Darkness page if you're struggling with depression or dark thoughts. You can find all of that and more at WeirdDarkness.com. And as I did yesterday, I am actually broadcasting live from the Dark History and Horror Con in Champaign, Illinois. I don't normally do a live show, but, well, this is a special occasion. I'm here until 7 p.m. tonight. The festivities actually go past that because they also have movie screenings and special speakers. But I'm here until 7 p.m. If you want to come out and uh, say hello, I've got my table of freebies as always. Everything on the table is absolutely free. Plus, some of the vendors here have just got some amazing stuff. As I mentioned in my podcast yesterday, I, I wanted to have an opportunity to kind of walk around and see some of the stuff. And we've got people here that sew horror stuff. They have people who draw, paint, uh, like in ink or in oils, in pencils, uh, all, all kinds of horror stuff. We've got a tarot reader here. Um, we've got, uh, I, I got the two ladies right next to me have just amazingly gorgeous keychains that you'd want to check out. Uh, we have a lot of authors that are here uh, that, where you can uh, get their autograph and buy their books. Uh, we've got so much cosplay. It's, it's insane because there's, there's a local 
uh, haunted house, Baldwin Asylum, that uh, is going to be opening here in the Champaign, Illinois area in October. And so they have some of their cosplayers out. Some of the people, or some of the creatures, that is, that you would see in the Baldwin Asylum are here. Like one of them happens to be a Wendigo, which I posted a video of yesterday. Just great, great stuff. Uh, we also have tattoo artists and celebrities. Uh, I actually, I bumped into Edward Furlong yesterday. I had no idea that he was here. Um, but I, I was in the bathroom, and uh, when I was coming out of my stall, he came out of his stall. And here we are, we're both washing our hands, and I'm looking over going, that guy looks familiar. How do I know him? And it took me a second. I, I, I had to leave the restroom before I finally realized, oh my gosh, I just shared a bathroom with Edward Furlong. I had no idea. Um, and by the way, in case you're wondering, yes, he washed his hands. So anyway, we're, uh, we got a great show. Everything's free on the table. Yeah, feel free. Yeah, I'm, I'm broadcasting live right now. I'm doing Weird Darkness, but I do an episode every day of the week. Um, I got fidget keychains right there. They don't do anything. They're just fun to play with. I've got uh, the phone stands, buttons, magnets, pens. Take, take one of everything if you'd like. Yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, and you're going to hear me do that during the during the show today. As people come up, I'm just going to let them know a little bit about the podcast. And those are people. See, I, see, I told, I wasn't lying to you. There are people here. He's not just talking to the voices in his head. <laughs> This time, this time, yes, I do often talk to the voices in my head. So anyway, uh, also a little bit later on today, uh, I met a couple of podcasters uh, here as well that I'm really impressed with. I don't normally take time in the show to talk about other podcasters, but uh, we'll meet those uh, a little bit later on because they're just pe- they're people I just know uh, that y- you need to meet because I think you're going to love them. But right now, you're here for the stories, so let's get into it. The following is a first-hand account from Albert Osman. It's from the book Sasquatch, Apes Among Us by John Green, which I have linked to in the show notes. I've always followed logging and construction work. This time I'd worked over one year on a construction job and thought a good vacation was in order. BC is famous for lost gold mines. One is supposed to be at the head of Toba Inlet. Why not look for this mine and have a vacation at the same time? I took the Union steamship boat to Lund, B.C., and from there I hired an old Indian to take me to the head of the Toba Inlet. This old Indian was a very talkative old gentleman. He told me stories about gold brought out by a white man from his lost mine. This white man was a very heavy drinker, spent his money freely in saloons, but he had no trouble in getting more money. He'd be away a few days, then come back with a bag of gold. But one time he went to his mine and never came back. Some people said that a Sasquatch had killed him. At that time, I'd never heard of a Sasquatch, so I asked what kind of an animal he called a Sasquatch. The Indian said, They have hair all over their bodies, but they are not animals. They are people, big people, living in the mountains. My uncle saw the tracks of one that were two feet long. One old Indian saw one over eight feet tall. I told the Indian I didn't believe in their old fables about mountain giants. It might have been some thousands of years ago, but not nowadays. The Indian said, there may not be many, but they still exist. We arrived at the head of the inlet about 4 p.m. I made camp at the mouth of the creek. The Indian had supper with me, and I told him to look out for me in about three weeks. I'd be camping at the same spot when I came back. Next morning, I took my rifle with me, but left my equipment at the camp. 
I decided to look around for some deer trail to lead me up to the mountains. On the way up the inlet, I had seen a, a pass in the mountains that I wanted to go through to see what was on the other side. I spent most of the forenoon looking for a trail, but found none, except for a hogback running down to the beach. So I swamped out a trail from there, got back to my camp about 3 p.m. that afternoon, and made up my pack to be ready in the morning. My equipment consisted of a 1-30-30 Winchester rifle, I had a special homemade prospecting pick, axe on one end, pick on the other. I had a leather case for this pick, which fastened to my belt, also my sheath knife. The storekeeper at Lund was cooperative. He gave me some cans for my sugar, salt, and matches to keep them dry. My grub consisted mostly of canned stuff, except for a side of bacon, a bag of beans, four pounds of prunes, and six packets of macaroni, cheese, three pounds of pancake flour, and six packets of Rye King hard tack, three rolls of snuff, one quart sealer of butter, and two one-pound ca- uh, one cans of milk. I had two boxes of shells for my rifle. The storekeeper gave me a biscuit tin. I put a few things in that and cached it under a waterfall. Or excuse me, I cached it under a windfall so I'd have it uh, so I would have it when I came back here waiting for a boat to bring me out. My sleeping bag I rolled up and tied on top of my pack sack, together with my ground sheet, small frying pan, and one aluminum pot that held about a gallon. As my canned food was used, I'd get plenty of empty cans to cook with. The following morning, I had an early breakfast, made up my pack, and started out up this hogback. My pack must have been at least 80 pounds besides my rifle. After one hour, I had to rest. I kept resting and climbing all that morning. About 2 p.m., I came to a flat place below a rock bluff. There was a bunch of willow in one place. I made a wooden spade and started digging for water. About a foot down, I got seepings of water, so I decided to camp here for the night and scout around for the best way to get on from there. I must have been up to near a thousand feet. There was a most beautiful view over the islands and the strait, tugboats with log booms and fishing boats going in all directions. A lovely spot. I spent the following day prospecting around, but no sign of minerals. I found a deer trail leading towards this pass that I had seen on, my, on uh, my way up the inlet. The following morning, I started out early. It was still cool. It was a steep climb with my heavy pack. After a three-hour climb, I was tired and stopped to rest. On the other side of a ravine, of a ravine from where I was, a, a yellow spot below some small trees I saw. I moved over there and started digging for water. I found a small spring and made a small trough from cedar bark and got a small amount of water, had my lunch, and rested here till evening. I made it over the pass late that night. Now, I had downhill and good going, but I was hungry and tired, so I camped at the first bunch of trees I came to. I was trying to size up the terrain. What direction would I take from here? Towards west would lead to low day. I must have made 10 miles when I came to a small spring, um, excuse me, towards west, sorry, uh, towards west we'd lead to Lowland and some other inlets, so I decided to go in a northeast direction. Had good going and slight downhill all day. I must have made 10 miles when I came to a small spring and a big black hemlock tree. This was a lovely campsite. I spent two days here just resting and prospecting. 
The first night here, I shot a small deer. Two days later, I found an exceptionally good campsite. It was two good-sized cypress trees growing close together and near a rock wall with a nice spring just below these trees. I intended to make this my permanent camp. I cut lots of brush from my bed between these trees. I rigged up a pole from this rock wall to hang my pack sack on, and I arranged some flat rocks for my fireplace for cooking. I had a really classy setup, and that is when things began to happen. I'm a heavy sleeper. Not much disturbs me after I go to sleep, especially on a good bed like I had now. Next morning, I noticed things had been disturbed during the night, but nothing missing I could see. I roasted my grouse on a stick for breakfast. That night, I filled up the magazine of my rifle. I still had one full box of 20 shells and six shells in my coat pocket. That night, I laid my rifle under the edge of my sleeping bag. I thought a porcupine had visited me the night before, and porkies like leather, so I put my shoes in the bottom of my sleeping bag this time. Next morning, my pack sack had been emptied out. Someone had turned the sack upside down. It was still hanging on the pole from the shoulder straps as I had hung it up. And then I noticed one half-pound package of prunes was missing. Also, my pancake flour was missing, but my salt bag wasn't touched. Porkies always look for salt, so I decided it must be something else than porkies. I looked for tracks, but found none. I didn't think it was a bear. They always tear up and make a mess of things. I kept close to camp these days in case this visitor would come back. I climbed up on a big rock where I had a good view of the camp, but well, nothing showed up. I was hoping it would be a porky so I'd get a good porky stew. These visits had now been going on for three nights. This night, it was cloudy and looked like it might rain. I took special notice of how everything was arranged. I closed my pack sack. I did not undress. I only took off my shoes, put them in the bottom of my sleeping bag. I drove my prospecting pick into one of the cypress trees so I could reach it from my bed. I also put the rifle alongside me, inside my sleeping bag. I fully intended to stay awake all night to find out who my visitor was, but I must have fallen asleep. I was awakened by something picking me up. I was half asleep, and at first I did not remember where I was. As I began to get my wits together, I remembered I was on this prospecting trip and in my sleeping bag. My first thought was it must be a snow slide, but there was no snow around my camp. Then it felt like I was tossed on horseback, but I could feel whoever it was, was walking. I tried to reason out what kind of animal this could be. I tried to get at my sheath knife and cut my way out, but I was in an almost sitting position and the knife was under me. I couldn't get hold of it, but the rifle was in front of me. I had a good hold of that and had no intention to let go of it. At times, I could feel my pack sack touching me and could feel the cans and the sack touching my back. After what seemed like an hour, I could feel we were going up a steep hill. I could feel myself rise for every step. The mountain Sasquatch giants. Uh, uh, what was carrying me was breathing hard and sometimes gave a slight cough, and now I knew this must be one of the mountain Sasquatch giants the Indian told me about. I was in a very uncomfortable position, unable to move. I was sitting on my feet, and one of the boots in the bottom of the bag was crossways with the hobnail sole up across my foot. 
It hurt me terribly, but I couldn't move. It was very hot inside, too. It was lucky for me this fellow's handset or hand was not big enough to close up the whole bag when he picked me up. There was a small opening at the top, otherwise I would have choked to death. Now he was going downhill. I could feel myself touching the ground at times, and at one time he dragged me a long time. By this time I had cramps in my legs. The pain was terrible. I was wishing that he'd get to his destination soon. I could, I could not stand this type of transportation much longer. Now he was going uphill again. It did not hurt me so bad. I tried to estimate distance and directions. As near as I could guess, we were both about three hours traveling. I had no idea when he started as I was asleep when he picked me up. Finally, he stopped and let me down. Then he dropped my pack sack. I could hear the cans rattle, and then I heard chatter. Some kind of talk I did not understand. The ground was sloping, so when he let go of my sleeping bag, I rolled downhill. I got my head out and got some air. I tried to straighten my legs and crawl out, but my legs at this time were numb. It was still dark. I could not see what the captors looked like. I tried to massage my legs to get some life in them and then get my shoes on. I could hear now it was at least four of them. They were standing around me and continuously chattering. I'd never heard of a Sasquatch before the Indian told me about them, but I knew now I was right among them. But how to get away from them? That was another question. I got to see the outline of them now. As it began to get lighter through the sky, was, uh, though the sky was cloudy, it looked like rain. In fact, there was a slight sprinkle. I now had circulation in my legs, but my left foot was very sore on top of where it had been resting on my hobnail, books, or hobnail boots. I got my boots out from the sleeping bag and tried to stand up. I found that I was wobbly on my feet, but I had a good hold of my rifle. I asked, what you fellows want with me? Only more chatter. It was getting lighter now, and I could see them quite clearly. I could make out forms of four people, two big and two little ones. They were all covered with hair, no clothes at all. I could now make out mountains all around me. I looked at my watch. It was 4.25 in the morning. It was getting lighter now, and I could see the people clearly. They looked like a family. Old man, old lady, two young ones, a boy and a girl. The boy and the girl seemed to be scared of me. The old lady didn't seem too pleased about what the old man had dragged home, but the old man was waving his arms and telling them all what he had in mind. They all left me then. I had my compass and my prospecting glass on strings around my neck, the compass in my left-hand shirt pocket and my glass in my right-hand pocket. I tried to reason our location and where I was. I could see now that I was in a small valley or basin, about eight or ten acres, surrounded by high mountains. On the southeast side, there was a V-shaped opening, about eight feet wide at the bottom of about uh, and about uh, 20 feet high at the highest point. That must be the way I came in. But how am I going to get out? The old man was now sitting near this opening. I moved my belongings up close to the west wall. There were two small cypress trees there, and this'll do for a shelter for time being, until I find out what these people want with me and how to get away from them. I emptied out my pack sack to see what I had left in line of food. All my canned meat and vegetables were intact. I had one can of coffee, also three small cans of milk. 
two packages of Rye King hard tack and my butter sealer half full of butter. But my prunes and macaroni were missing. Also my full box of shells for my rifle. I had my sheath knife, but my prospecting pick was missing and also my can of matches. I only had my safety box full and that held only about a dozen matches. That didn't worry me. I could always start a fire with my prospecting glass when the sun's shining. I got dry wood. I wanted hot coffee, but I had no wood. Also, nothing around here that looked like wood. I had a good look over the valley from where I was, but the boy and girl were always watching me from behind some juniper bush. I decided there must be some water around here. The ground was leaning towards the opening in the wall. There must be water at the upper end of this valley. There is green grass and moss along the bottom. All my utensils were left behind. I opened my coffee tin and emptied the coffee in a dish towel and tied it with a metal strip from the can. I took my rifle and the can and went looking for water. Right at the head, under a cliff, there was a lovely spring that disappeared underground. I got a drink and a full can of water. When I got back, the young boy was looking over my belongings, but he didn't touch anything. On my way back, I noticed where these people were sleeping. On the east side wall of this valley was a shelf in the mountainside with overhanging rock looking something like a big undercut in a big tree about 10 feet deep and 30 feet wide. The floor was covered with lots of dry moss, and they had some kind of blankets woven of narrow strips to cedar bark packed with dry moss. They looked very practical and warm, with no need of washing. The first day, not much happened. I had to to eat my food cold. The young fellow was coming nearer me, and he seemed curious about me. My one snuff box was empty, so I relied it, so I, I relied it toward him. When he saw it coming, he sprang up quick as a cat and grabbed it. He went over to his sister and showed her. They found out how to open and close it. They spent a long time playing with it, and then he trotted over to the old man and showed him. They had a long chatter. Next morning, I made up my mind to leave this place. If I had to shoot my way out, I couldn't stand this much longer. I only had enough grub to last me till I got back to Tova Inlet. I didn't know the direction, but I'd go downhill and would come out near civilization someplace. I rolled up my sleeping bag, put that inside my pack sack, packed the few cans I had, swung the sack on my back, ejected the shell in the barrel of my rifle, and started for the opening in the wall. The old man got up, held up his hands as though he would push me back. I pointed to the opening. I wanted to go out. But he stood there, pushing towards me and said something that sounded like Soka Soka. I backed up about 60 feet. I didn't want to be too close. If, if I, I thought if I, if I had to shoot my way out, a 30-30 might not have much effect on this fellow. In fact, it just might make him mad. I only had six shells, so I decided to wait. There must be a better way than killing him in order to get out of here. I went back to my campsite to figure out some other way to get out. I could make friends with the young fellow or the girl. They might help me. If I could just talk to them. And then I thought of a fellow who saved himself from a mad bull by blinding him with snuff in his eyes. But how will I get near enough to this fellow to put snuff in his eyes? So I decided next time I give the young fellow my snuff box to leave a few grains of snuff in it. He might give the old man a taste of it. But the question is, in what direction will I go?
if I should get out. It must have been near 25 miles northeast of Toba Inlet when I was kidnapped. This fellow must have traveled at least 25 miles in those three hours he carried me. If he went west, we would be near saltwater. Same thing if he went south. Therefore, he must have gone northeast. If I then keep going south and over two mountains, I must hit saltwater someplace between Lund and Vancouver. The following day, I did not see the old lady till about 4 p.m. She came home with her arms full of grass and twigs and all kinds of spruce and hemlock, as well as some kind of nuts that grow in the ground. I've seen, twi- uh, I've seen the lots of them on Vancouver Island. The young fellow went up the mountain to the east every day. He'd climb better than a mountain goat. He picked some kind of grass with long, sweet roots. He gave me some one day. They did taste very sweet. I gave him another snuff box with about a teaspoon of snuff in it. He tasted it, then went to the old man. He licked it with his tongue. They had a long chat. I made a dipper from a milk can. I made many dippers. You can use them for pots, too. You cut two slits near the top of any can, then cut a limb from any small tree, cut down back of the limb, uh, uh, down to the stem of the tree, then taper the part that you cut from the stem and then cut a hole in the tapered part, slide the tapered part in the slit you've made into the can, and you have a good handle on your can. I threw one over to the young fellow that was playing near my camp. He picked it up and looked at it, and then he went to the old man and showed it to him. They had a long chatter, again, and then he came up to me, pointed at the dipper, and then at his sister. I could see that he wanted one for her, too. Well, I had other peas and carrots, so I made one for his sister. He was standing only eight feet away from me. When I had made the dipper, I dipped it in the water and drank from it. He was very pleased, almost smiled at me. And then I took a chew of snuff, smacked my lips, and said, That's good. The young fellow pointed to the old man, said something that sounded like, Ook. I got the idea the old man liked snuff, and the young fellow wanted a box for the old man. I shook my head. I motioned with my hands for the old man to come to me. I don't think the yellow, the uh, young fellow understood what I meant. He went to his sister and gave her the dipper I made for her. They did not come near me again that day. I had now been here six days, but I was sure I was making progress. If only I could get the old man to come over to me, get him to eat a full box of snuff, that'd kill him for sure, and that way kill himself. I wouldn't be guilty of murder. The old lady was a meek old thing. The young fellow, by this time, quite friendly. The girl would not hurt anybody. Her chest was flat like a boy's, no development like young ladies. I'm sure if I was to get the old man out of the way, I could have easily have brought this girl out with me to civilization. But what good would that have been? I'd have to keep her in a cage for public display. I don't think we have any right to force our way on people like that. I don't think they'd like it either the noise on the racket in a modern city, they would not like any more than I do. The young fellow might have been between 11, 18 years old, about 7 feet tall, and might weigh about 300 pounds. His chest would be 50 to 55 inches. His waist about 36 to 38 inches. He had wide jaws, narrow forehead that slanted upward, um, slanted upward, uh, an upward turn like some women have. They call it bangs. Among women's hairdos, nowadays the old lady could have been anything between 40 and 70 years old. She was over 7 feet tall. She would have been about 500, 600 pounds. 
She had very wide hips and a goose-like walk. She was not built for beauty or speed. Some of those lovable brassieres and uplifts would have been a great improvement on her looks and her figure. The man's eye teeth were longer than the rest of the teeth, but not long enough to be called tusks. The old man must have been near eight feet tall, big barrel chest and big hump on his back, powerful shoulders. His biceps and upper arm were enormous and tapered down to his elbows. His forearms were longer than common people have, but well-proportioned. His hands were wide. The palm was long and broad and hollow like a scoop. His fingers were short in proportion to the rest of his hand. His fingernails were like chisels. The only place that had no hair was inside their hands and the soles of their feet and upper part of the nose and eyelids. I never did see their ears. They were covered with hair hanging over them. If the old man were to wear a collar, it would have to be at least 30 inches. I have no idea what size shoes they would need. I was watching the young fellow's foot one day when he was sitting down. The soles of his feet seemed to be padded like a dog's foot, and the big toe was longer than the rest and very strong. In mountain climbing, all he needed was footing for his big toe. They were very agile. To sit down, they turned their knees out and came straight down. To rise, they came straight up without help of hands or arms. I don't think this valley was their permanent home. I think they moved from place to place, wherever food's available in different localities. They might eat meat, but I never saw them eat meat or do any cooking. I think this was probably a stopover place for them, and the plants with sweet roots on the mountainside might have been in season this time of the year. They seemed to be most interested in them. The roots have a very sweet and satisfying taste. They always seemed to do everything for a reason. They wasted no time on anything that they didn't need. When they were not looking for food, the old man and the old lady were resting, but the boy and the girl were always climbing something or doing some other exercise. A favorite position was to take hold of his feet with his hands and balance on his rump and then bounce forward. The idea seemed to be how far he could get without his feet or hands touching the ground. Sometimes he made a good 20 feet or so. But what do they want with me? They must understand I can't stay here indefinitely. I'll soon have to make a break for freedom. Not that I was mistreated in any way. One consolidation was that the old man was coming closer each day and was very interested in my snuff. Watching me when I take a pinch of snuff, he seems to think it's useless only just to put it on my lips. So one morning, after I had my breakfast, both the old man and the boy, they came and sat down only ten feet away from me. This morning, I'd made coffee. I'd saved up all the dry branches I found and had some dry moss, and I used all the labels from the cans to start a fire. I got my coffee pot boiling, and it was strong coffee, too, and the aroma from boiling coffee was what brought them over. I was sitting eating hard tack with plenty of butter on it, sipping coffee, it sure tasted good. I was smacking my lips, pretending that it was better than it really was. I set the can down, then that was about half full. I intended to warm it up later. I pulled out a full box of snuff, took a big chew, and before I had time to close the box, the old man reached for it. I was afraid that he'd waste it and only had two more, and I only had two more boxes, so I held on to this box, intending him to take a pinch like I had just done. Instead, he grabbed the box and emptied it into his mouth, swallowed it in one gulp, 
Benny licked the box inside with his tongue. After a few minutes, his eyes began to roll over in his head. He was looking straight up. I could see that he was sick. And then he grabbed my coffee can that was quite cold by this time. He emptied that in his mouth, grounds and all. That did no good. He stuck his head between his legs and rolled forward a few times away from me. Then he began to squeal like a stuck pig. I grabbed my rifle. I said to myself, this is it. If he comes for me, I will shoot him plumb between his eyes. But he started for the spring. He wanted water. I packed my sleeping bag in my pack sack with the few cans I had left. The young fellow ran over to his mother, and then she began to squeal. I I started for the opening in the wall, and I just made it. The old lady was right behind me. I fired one shot at the rock over her head. I guess she'd never seen a rifle fired before. She turned and ran inside the wall. I injected another shell in the barrel of my rifle and started downhill, looking back over my shoulder every so often to see if they were coming. I was in a canyon, the good traveling, and I had made fast time. Must have made three miles in some world record time. I came to a turn in the canyon, and I had the sun on my left. That meant I was going south, and the canyon turned west. I decided to climb the ridge ahead of me. I knew that I must have two mountain ridges between me and saltwater, and by climbing this ridge, I'd have a good view of this canyon, so I could see if the Sasquatch were coming after me. I had a light pack and was making good time up this hill. I stopped soon afterwards to look back to where I came from, but, well, nobody followed me. As I came over the ridge, I could see Mount Baker, and I knew then where that I was going in the right direction. I was hungry and tired. I opened my pack sack to see what I had to eat. I decided to rest here for a while. I had a good view of the mountainside, and if the old man was coming, I had the advantage because... I was up above I was up above him. To get to me, he'd have to come up a steep hill, and that might not be so easy after stopping a few 30-30 bullets. I made up my mind this was my last chance, and this would be a fight to the finish. I rested here for two hours. It was 3 p.m. when I started down the mountainside. It was nice going, not too steep, not too much underbrush. When I got near the bottom, I shot a big blue grouse. She was sitting on a windfall, looking right at me, only a hundred feet away. I shot her neck right off. I made it down the creek at the bottom of this canyon. I felt I was safe now. I made a fire between two big boulders, roasted the grouse. Next morning when I woke up, I was feeling terrible. My feet were sore from dirty socks. My legs were sore. My stomach was upset from that grouse that I ate the night before. I wasn't sure I was even going to make it up that mountain. I did finally make it to the top, but it took me six hours to get there. It was cloudy. Visibility, about a mile. I knew I had to go downhill. After about two hours, I got down to the heavy timber and sat down to rest. I could hear a motor running hard at times and then stop. I listened to this for a while and decided the sound was from a gas donkey. Someone was logging in the neighborhood. I told them I told them that I was a prospector. I was lost. I did not like to tell them that I'd been kidnapped by a Sasquatch. If I had told them that, they'd probably have said, that, Oh, yeah, he's crazy, too. The following day, I went down from this camp on Salmon Arm Branch of Seckelt Inlet. From there, I got the Union boat back to Vancouver. That was my last prospecting trip and my only experience with what's known as Sasquatch. 
I know that in 1924 there were four Sasquatches living. I might be, there might be only two now. I have no idea. The old man and the old lady might be dead at this time. I really don't know. Coming up, whether or not you believe the story from Albert Osman, there are numerous other stories from people who have also claimed to either be kidnapped by Sasquatch or, even more disturbing, having intimate relations with one. That is up next. Plus, when mine owners cut wages in 1870s Pennsylvania, the Molly Maguires fought back and ultimately won what would become the first labor war in U.S. history, although they had to assassinate a couple dozen people to do it. Plus, there's a scary urban legend from Spain about a bizarre website that offers you the ultimate horror experience. Apparently, the experience can prove to be lethal. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. Hey, weirdos. I'm broadcasting live from the Dark History and Horror Con in Champaign, Illinois. And I told you earlier that there are a couple of folks that I wanted to introduce you to because I think you're really going to love their stuff. One of them happens to be Brandon from Southern uh, Gothic, the podcast. And I'm going to move this over here a little bit. Brandon, how are you doing, Brandon? I'm doing well, Darren. Thanks for having me, man. So I met you just for the first time yesterday. Sure. So And I listened to your podcast yesterday, uh, last night when I went to bed. Fantastic. I'm actually I'm, I'm somewhat jealous about your your audio production skills. To tell you the truth, you, obviously you do that for a living. I do. I'm an audio engineer for a living. So, a long career in so audio podcasting is just yeah. a just a nice little little step for you. Then absolutely, it was a creative step. I mean, yeah. that's what we love to do, right? We like to make things. We like to tell our stories. We like to do all that. This was my opportunity to do that. So, so um, before we dig a little bit deeper, tell us just a little bit about uh, what the podcast is all about. Sure. Well, you know, I'm following in the same vein as you, Darren. I'm telling ghost stories. You're my, you're my competition? I'm, exactly. We're competition. Yeah, but I'm trying <laughs> Get to steal, away from my steal your listeners right now. No, we, we, uh, we are a, uh, a podcast. We go through the South, and we like to tell all the stories that your mama told you growing up. And we want to find all those little towns in the South, tell the history of the stories, tell the ghost stories, talk about all the paranormal happenings, a little bit of the dark history, stuff like that. And we like to do it with a little flair, of course. You know, a little hey, y'all going on, because right. it's the South, right? I do, yeah, I liked that you kept saying y'all. I can't help I it, though. It. It's, it's, you know, you put your own personality into these things, right? Well, you, know, I, you know, my yeah. listeners call themselves weirdos, and so, so that's yeah. sort of my thing, and you're, you just say y'all to all of your listeners. I, th- I think it's great. It's, it's got that homey feel to it. I know. You know, well, yeah, you know but, yeah, we've known each other forever, y'all. Uh, totally. Yeah. I mean, all, if it's the South, right? Like, you, you, we can't stop talking either. Right. You know, like, it's like I run into a fan, and of course, we're going to talk about your mom, where you're from, mm-hmm. everything else. You know, you're going to tell me a story from something in childhood. It's just, it's just how it works down there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what made you decide to actually step into podcasting then? Sure. Well, you know, I worked in a, I worked on Music Row. I worked in country music for a long time. I was in studios up there. And uh, I loved those storyteller songwriters. Oh, yeah. Those guys that, I mean, there's murder ballads, all the stuff that they would do, right? I mean, you weirdos like that, right? Murder ballads, right? So I, I love that. I love that part of it. Um, but, you know, being an engineer, being a studio guy, I wasn't making a lot of stuff on my own. Right. So I love the stories. I love that. I'm not a very good musician, unfortunately. I'm a bit of a hack. But... 
this was an opportunity to kind of enjoy all that mm-hmm. and, and get to connect with people and get to learn more. What, do you are you the one that plays the guitar on the? I am. Uh, well, then you've got yeah. some musical skills. Then, well, you know, I think the reason that we tell ghost stories is because my only musical skills are dark and kind of swampy. <laughs> <laughs> and a guitar works really well around a campfire. You know, something it's, like that. It's absolutely. It's, it's perfect. Um, it's uh, whatever you were telling a story in, in last night's. Uh, it was what. Which one? Miss Riley? Oh, Alice Riley of Savannah. Yes, sir. Uh, That's the one I was listening to last night, and whenever the guitar came in, I thought, that is a really nice segue into the next part of the story. Uh And I wondered if you were using a music library or something, or if you were doing that on your own. So that's you. Everything. Sound effects, everything. I I do hit up a library every now and then for something. Yeah. Some of the screaming and stuff is my uh, 14-year-old girl. Um, I get (laughs) get her to come in. I'm not going to ask her how to get this She loves to come to be on the podcast, right? She (laughs) loves, like, hey, you know, like, there's somebody getting murdered. Really, Dad? You know? (laughs) But uh, no, no, all the stuff, you know, I make everything myself. You know, every now and then we'll pull out, like, if I need a fiddle or something, I'll use a library. You know, I'm not, you don't, I mean, you don't want to hear me play a fiddle. But yeah, yeah, we do all that stuff. I'm telling you. I was. I'm, I'm really impressed. I appreciate. Uh, I'm, I'm not a. What, what people don't don't know about me, and so I'm kind of opening myself up here as well. I don't really listen to a lot of other podcasts that are in a similar genre as mine. For some reason, I just, I get my fill doing it myself when it's a full time job. But you are now in my podcast catcher, and I'm going to be listening to you regularly. How often? You're every fortnight, right? So every two weeks? Every two weeks. And we, every now and then we'll come out with a little mini-sode in between that might be like a little offshoot. Okay. Let's say. So we have like another little ghost story. Yeah, I know. It's just a couple of new, like four minutes long. Yeah. Minutes long, about, but but yeah, your regular well, episodes yeah. are like a little over half hour or something like that? Yeah, probably about 30 to 45 minutes. Yeah. Somewhere around there. So yeah. it's fun so, so your uh, your sister works with you. She does the exactly. research? Yes. She's an archivist at the Louisiana State Museum down in the French Quarter. Right. So she is. Uh, that is her trade is research. So it just it, it absolutely helps it congeal with that, that extra bit of history, authenticity, and all. And yeah, she's obviously really so she's there. writing your, I guess for lack of better word, scripts. Right, so. she kind of does the rough draft, and, yeah. then I, and then I make it. She hates that I say y'all, hates that I say folks. She's an <laughs> academic, so I take this really academic thing and turn it into like a campfire sounding, you know? Like, <laughs> well, sis, if you're listening, it's working for him. Don't take that away from him. You know, you're you're giving him the bare bones, which he which he needs, but he puts the the y'all, the the hominess into it, and it, and it works. Exactly. So you guys have been doing this for how long now? Almost five years now. Five years. Yeah, five and years. is this your full time gig? Or are you still doing audio on the side? Or? I still I edit other people's podcasts, so I'm in podcasting full time. Oh, nice. we do. A little, we have a little bit. We we produce some other shows and stuff as well for people that kind of pay us for our, our expertise doing that. So yeah, it's uh so podcasting is day in and day out. Yeah, well, welcome yeah. to my world. I know yeah. exactly. Isn't it great to be self-employed it's wonderful let me tell you yeah. you're never off everybody thinks you're off all the time uh, oh yeah so what are you doing for christmas working exactly yeah i'm, I'm not leaving the if i'm leaving it's to come out and do something like this otherwise i'm in the studio working uh, well i told you you're the. i think you're the hardest working man in here last night i tried to invite darren out to uh, come hang out with us down at the bar and he had to go and he had to go back to the hotel room and get this episode ready for you guys. So. Yep, yep. I had a fireside fright I had to do last night. So, well, all right. So it's Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic. That's what. So that's what people want to look for wherever they're listening to podcasts. Absolutely. Are you everywhere? You're like on Spotify. I am everywhere. And... Spotify, Apple, the whole deal. You can even find us on YouTube. We got audiograms okay. on YouTube. You can watch there. All right. And do you have a so, website that people yes. might want to check out? Website is southerngothicmedia.com. Southerngothicmedia.com. Uh, and uh, I'll also put a link to that in the show notes in case you want to go check it out but I I really cannot recommend 
listening to Brandon's show enough. Southern Gothic, I was really impressed last night. He is very similar to what I do, and I guess maybe that's why I like it, because it's almost like listening to a Southern version of myself almost. We're, we're stealing each other's but, secrets is well, what we're yeah, doing, yeah, yeah. let's be yeah. honest. Yeah, I noticed my, <laughs> my stories. Your sister's stealing my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. I'm very, very tempted to steal your stuff, though, because oh, it's well, so well, well written. We're going to share. Does a great we're, job. Yeah, we'll and you, know, if you guys are thinking about even getting into uh, maybe making books out of your stuff, too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're looking at as much as we can. I, I have so much fun telling ghost stories. Yeah. Don't you? I oh, mean, yeah. like, this is such a... it's. It's so much fun. It's, people respond to this stuff so well. Yeah. You know, I mean, you you have the followership. You guys know. I mean, it's right. this is such a blast to be doing paranormal stuff. In fact, it's, it's, I don't know about you. For me, it's, it's more fun to tell the stories than to listen to them. I, I yeah. love telling the stories even more. Well, you know, the, the problem with listening to other people's podcasts is I get jealous. So, like, oh, yeah. I hear, I hear oh, like, yeah. how good your voice is sometimes. I'm like, ah, oh, how do I do that? How do I make and my I'm listening to you like going, that, why you know? can't I write like that? That's incredible. <laughs> and, and you also have the audio expertise behind you. I mean, I've been uh-huh. in radio all my life Absolutely. and doing audio, but you've got, I mean, you've got uh-huh. the technical skills down. Yeah, and we, it's so crisp and clean. I appreciate um, it. I'm, yeah, I'm telling you. And, and spe- I didn't listen to it on headphones last night. I'm looking forward to it because I'm sure you're using your stereo to full effect. Oh, yeah. We have a little surround effect in there sometimes, yeah. too. You might end up with a ghost behind your head. So oh, watch would, out. Yeah, I can't wait to Every listen so to it on headphones. <laughs> All right. It's Southern Gothic, and you guys have got to check it out. SouthernGothicMedia.com. Media.com. SouthernGothicMedia.com. Just look for Southern Gothic wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. Brandon, I appreciate you coming over and talking to me. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Looking forward to hanging out. More All right. Well, well, we'll get back to the podcast here in just a moment. And uh, I think I have another Sasquatch story coming up. So we'll do that coming up. Welcome back to Weird Darkness. I'm Darren Marlar, and, uh, and we were just talking with Brandon from Southern Gothic, the uh, the podcast. Again, I can't I can't say enough great things about him. He re- he really is awesome. But uh, I'm here at the the uh, Dark History and Horror Con. That's actually where I met him last night, and we're hanging out today as well. And uh, we're going to be out here until 7 p.m. So you can actually come out and meet Brandon. Uh, I'm I'll be speaking with another podcast here in a few minutes if I can if I can wave them down, which is called. Our True Crime Podcast, and I listened to them last night, and it's just a couple of ladies that really know their stuff. It's not one of... You know what? I'll, I'll just wait to talk to them when I to talk about that, because uh, they're just really impressive. But if you're anywhere in the Champaign, Illinois area, you really want to come out, because we've got artists in so many different genres, uh, uh, art, when it got like a like anime, uh, watercolors, paints. We've got people that are doing... Uh, comics, horror, some people who are doing some sewing in the horror genre, which is really cool. We've got a, a tarot reader. We've got tattoo artists here that are actually working, actually doing tattoos here here on the on the premises. Uh, we've got some celebrity horror folks, which you can learn about if you go to the events calendar at WeirdDarkness.com. Click on the uh, the calendar. Uh, click on the date in the calendar for today's event, and that way you can actually get some more information about all the different speakers. It would take me forever to go through all of them. Uh, all the speakers and the celebrities. We actually have both of those today, so it's it's a very, very busy day. So definitely something you want to check out. Uh, again, Champaign, Illinois, the Dark History and Horror Con.
Is there a history of human beings being abducted by hairy, unknown hominids? Aside from Albert Osman, who we just heard about? Well, yeah. In fact, here is a list of a few possible kidnapping incidents shared by Norwegian cryptologist Eric Natrut. From Spain, Sienra. Cien- uh, Probably about 800 years ago, baby abduction. An infant boy was stolen from his nanny, but a swift rescue party managed to find the boy being happily suckling one of the tits of the animal. The rescue party chased away the wild woman and retrieved the baby. The Serana, or wild woman, was referred to at the time as a bear. Uh, uh, This one comes from Savoy, France, the village of Navas, and I'm sure I'm butchering certain pronunciations, especially with French names, but anyway, in 1602, this is a female abduction, and it was cited in a writing already in 1605. 17-year-old Antoinette Coulet was herding animals when she disappeared. Well, later, the same year, three lumberjacks from the village, they happened to work in the mountains where one of them noticed a voice from behind a boulder blocking a cave, a voice that insisted to be the abducted Antoinette Coulet. She told them about the ugly but amorous monster with enormous strength. Obviously, he stole and brought her bas- uh, he stole and brought her baskets of bread, fruit, cheese, linen, and thread. And that night, the creature intruded the village but was ambushed and shot to death. The creature was a bear, supposedly, but it had a navel like humans and almost looked like a human. A story about a raping Sasquatch, apparently. In Dauphine, Alavard, the district of Isère, late 19th century, male abduction. The young lumberjack, Bourne, was about to cross a hill at night to visit his fiancée when he was taken and slung over the shoulders of a hairy giant and brought to a cave with a group of brown, long-haired creatures talking a strange language. The biggest hairy man was about eight feet tall. He looked almost human and had long arms and big hands. After several hours, Bourne pulled out his pipe, which was snatched away. In the, following fl- in the following fight over the pipe, Bourne managed to escape. Locals called these creatures uh, marfalots. And you'll note the story sounds kind of like the 1924 kidnapping about Albert Osman. France, Briancon Hot Alpes? Uh, 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 again, France, sorry. Uh, late 19th century. This was a male abduction as well. A man missing for days said that he had been abducted by a hairy forest man and kept in a cave with his family female with two kids. He was fed some berries, but eventually they lost interest in him. This one comes from Spain, about 1920. Female abduction. A young couple was tending farm animals in the Sierra Morena when the female was taken by an ape-like creature when she was washing clothes at a stream. She was kept in a cave and raped, but escaped eventually. The resulting baby girl, yes, she got pregnant and gave birth the, bir- the girl's name, Anika, was known as the, Bus- the Basajan, or Master of the Forest. Uh, the, I'm sorry, I take that back. Anika was known as the uh, daughter of the orangutan. She had a hairy body, long arms, and an ape-like mouth. The male wild men there are known as the Basajan, or Master of the Forest. There are also three cases from Sweden, not really about abduction, but about having relations with hairy females out in the forest at night. Here, the wild women are called Skagra, or Master of the Forest. In Norway, there are many local anecdotes about abductions, likely ancient legends. 
The Skagra of Sweden is also known by several other names. One of them is Troll Woman. The Norwegian match is Huldr, she who is hidden. About trolls being man-sized, trolls actually have only been transformed into smallish gnomes in the last few decentions uh, to fit the tourist trade. The three Swedish stories about forbidden sex with the creatures were dug up in 300-year-old court archives. In the 1870s, the Molly Maguires assassinated 24 mine foremen and supervisors and sent coffin notices to scabs during mining strikes. The secret society carried out assaults, arsons, and murders for years before a Pinkerton detective infiltrated the organization to bring them down from the inside. The Molly Maguires fought for better working conditions in the deadly mines of Pennsylvania, but their violent methods caught up with them in a trial that sent 27 men to the gallon, to the uh, gallows. Were the Molly Maguires vicious murderers or desperate workers fighting for their rights? The Molly Maguires were a secret society of Irish mine workers. They borrowed their name from a secret society back in Ireland where members dressed in women's clothes to disguise themselves. According to one legend, a widow named Molly Maguire led the Irish protesters in a group called the Anti-Landlord Agitators. The gang adopted her name as their calling card when fighting against English landowners. Like the Irish Molly Maguires, the American society fought against injustice, including their treatment in the mines. The Great Famine drove over a million Irish immigrants to America. In the 19th century, many businesses discriminated against the Irish, even hanging signs saying, Irish need not apply. In Pennsylvania's coal country, many Irish immigrants took jobs in the mines. The Molly Maguires first appeared during the Civil War. Angry at being drafted into war and frustrated by terrible working conditions, Irish immigrants lashed out at mine officials. The secret society quieted down in the late 1860s when the mine owners joined a labor association. The Working Men's Benevolent Association, the WBA, successfully negotiated higher wages. Until, that is, Franklin B. Gowan, a railroad man, gained a monopoly over the coal mining industry in Pennsylvania. Under Gowan's harsh rule, the Molly Maguires reappeared, and so did their violent methods. Mine workers faced horrific conditions in the 1870s. Schuylkill County employed 22,500 miners, which included over 5,000 children as young as five. With few safety regulations, working in the mines took a deadly toll. Owners also wrung profits from the miners by forcing them to live in company-owned housing and shop at company-owned stores. Many workers ended the month owing money to their employers rather than making any wages. After an economic depression in 1873, mine owners forced a new contract on the workers. Pay rates dropped by as much as 20%. In response, the miners went on strike. During the long strike of 1875, which stretched on for seven months, the owners and miners battled each other. The Molly Maguires began sending anonymous threats to supervisors. Pennsylvania's governor even sent troops to break the strike. Miners were forced to accept the lower pay, but some turned to violent methods to exact revenge on mine owners. During the long strike of 1875, the WBA fell apart, and the miners quickly realized the legal system offered few protections to immigrants and members of the working class. The Molly Maguires rose up to fight for the mine workers. 
The Molly Maguires targeted three groups. Mine owners, policemen hired by the owners, and strike breakers. They threatened scabs who took over their jobs and assaulted mine supervisors. As the strike dragged on, the coal owners created their own police force to attack the strikers. Known as Pennsylvania Cossacks, the hired enforcers beat and killed miners. The violence continued, so Gowan, president of the Philadelphia and Reading Coal and Iron Company, took more drastic measures. Gowan responded to the Molly Maguires by calling in the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Alan Pinkerton, the first private detective in the U.S., was known for his brutal methods against strikers. In the second half of the 19th century, mining and railroad owners often turned to the Pinkertons to act as a private military force. To undermine the Molly Maguires, Pinkerton sent in an undercover detective, James McParland, an Irish-born detective. He spent over two years as an undercover agent in the secret society. Under the alias James McKenna, McParland joined a local Irish lodge and eventually gained the trust of the Molly Maguires. McParland sent regular reports to the Pinkertons, who used his information to target and kill several miners. In 1875, the police arrested 60 members of the Molly Maguires who soon faced trial. James McParland acted as the star witness during the trials, which lasted from 1875 to 1877. But Franklin Gowan also played a central role as the chief prosecutor, even though, as the mine owner, he had hired the Pinkertons to infiltrate the Molly Maguires. During the trials, in front of juries with no Irish members, Gowan built a case against the Molly Maguires. Outside the court, Gowan spread pamphlets featuring his courtroom speeches. The evidence presented in court often fell short of legal requirements. Aside from McParland, most of the evidence was circumstantial or easily refuted. McParland himself faced an, ac an accusation of perjury. Based almost exclusively on McParland's testimony, the trial sentenced 20 men to death. On June 21, 1877, a day known as Black Thursday, 10 members of the secret society faced death together on the gallows. Before the convicted men faced execution, the Catholic Church excommunicated them, denying the men last rites or a Christian burial. One Pennsylvania judge criticized the trial. A private corporation initiated the investigation through a private detective agency. A private police force arrested the alleged defenders. A private attorney for the coal companies prosecuted them. The state provided only the courtroom and the gallows. The mine owners and the miners both turned to violence in the 1870s. Company police fired into union meetings and killed the wife of a union organizer, while the Molly Maguires assassinated mine supervisors. But only the Molly Maguires faced legal consequences for their actions. In 1979, the state of Pennsylvania granted a full pardon to John Kehoe, sometimes called the King of the Molly Maguires. There's somewhat of a new urban legend that's been circulating the schools all over Spain. In whispers and rumors, people are talking about a strange website called The Blind Maiden. This legend is almost entirely unknown outside of Spain, so if you've not heard of it, that's probably why. They say that most of the time, the website's offline. You can't access it anyway, no matter how hard you try. However, according to the rumor, 
there are three rules you must obey in order to gain admittance. One, you must be all alone. Two, you must turn off all the lights in your house. And three, you must go to the website at exactly midnight on a moonless night. If you satisfy all these conditions, you will apparently be granted access to the Blind Maiden website. Once inside, they say your eyes will immediately be flooded by a never-ending montage of shocking, screaming faces. The pictures are of boys and girls. Their faces are twisted in tremendous fear, their mouths frozen in a silent scream, their eyes missing. The pictures are displayed quickly, flashing up on screen one after the other after the other with no explanation. According to the legend, some line... Well, hello there. Hi. Oh, actually, hold on, folks. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm broadcasting live, so... No, that's okay. You wanted to see... Oh, look, she's, she's showing me her phone that has the Southern Gothic podcast sticker on it. So you checked out the... Have you listened to the Southern Gothic podcast yet? Have you listened to their podcast yet? I listened to it for the first time last night. It is really good. Yes, you got to check it out. So... But I'll talk to you again once uh, once I'm done here. I'll, I'll come over and I, I bought some chai tea from her yesterday. By the way, that's that's she was coming over here. I bought some chai tea for my bride. Okay, <laughs> so I told you I would end up being interrupted once in a while. I mean, that's just that's just going to happen. Okay, moving on. Uh, according to the legend, some lines of Spanish text will appear on the screen on this website. Roughly translated, the text reads something like: "This website will take you to a whole new level of horror." a horror that will use all five of your senses. You must be very careful not to click on anything by accident. You'll be faced with a real experience of absolute horror. Click the accept button to engage actively in the experience. Below that text are two buttons, accept and decline. Now at this point you probably are really curious. You'll probably find yourself tempted to click that accept button. Don't do it. If you accept the challenge, you'll only be apparently taking your life into your hands. You click Decline and stay safe. So what happens if you do click on Accept? Well, to your surprise and horror, you observe on your monitor a sinister silhouette walking towards your own home. You want to wake up. You want this to just be a nightmare. You watch as the figure approaches and enters the same room where you're sitting. You will see on your monitor your own back. And then you'll feel a presence behind you. You'll feel a tap on your shoulder. The last thing you see before you die will be the face of the blind maiden staring mercilessly at you with her horrible, empty eye sockets. According to legend, they say the blind maiden will rip out your eyes and take a snapshot of your face so that you will forever be a part of the website's picture gallery, which you had just come from. Here's a rough English translation of a comment from a Spanish boy who claims to have accessed the website. Blind maiden, whatever you want to call her, this urban legend is real and I almost suffered the consequences of messing with that crazy site. The story is that there's a web page which you can only enter if you are totally alone with all the lights off in your home at exactly midnight. After that, whatever you do, don't click where it says accept the challenge because when you do this, if you do this, you will probably die, probably within minutes. I didn't take this advice. I did the opposite and totally accepted the challenge. Right at that moment, I clicked the button and everything I saw on the screen became so real. 
I saw a shadow walking towards the place that seemed to be my home, and I saw it walk to where I was. Paralyzed by fear, I could not move a muscle, and then it came to the door and began to open it. Right then I turned around and saw the door behind me opening, and then I see this face. It was indescribable, but it had no eyes. And then it came closer, and I heard it whispering something that I couldn't understand. And this face changed and became gruesome, and with an expression of terror I will never forget, I ran with everything I could, and I tripped over something on the floor, and I hit the edge of the study table, and I fell unconscious. It seems she must have thought that I was dead, because thanks to that, I survived. Never again in my life will I play with the supernatural, and I'll never underestimate its power ever again. Again, it's just a legend, but I'll leave you to test it if you're brave enough. When Weird Darkness returns, numerous cultures have images of being tied to nature, simply called the Green Man. But how can so many different cultures spanning so many years have almost the exact same representation of it? But first, the Azores island chain in the Atlantic is said by sailors to be the site of strange and disturbing events. Some are so spooked by the waters surrounding these islands, they refuse to go there. That story is coming up when Weird Darkness returns. Cam! Cam! <laughs> Hey, weirdos. Uh, we're taking a real quick break here. Uh, I, got, I got a chair here for, for one of you ladies. I've got Cam and Jen. Jen. They're both here from our True Crime Podcast. Not to be confused with another True Crime Podcast. No, it's, this one's totally It's ours. their True Crime Podcast, but it's not called their True Crime Podcast. It's called our, our. True Crime, but it's not our, it's not my True Crime Podcast. It's just It's, it's, it's theirs, ours. but it's ours. All right, you know what? I'm going to let them talk about it. It's going to be a lot easier that way. But Jen and Cam are here mm-hmm. with the with the Our True Crime podcast. And I bet you guys just yesterday. Right. And had a blast listening to your show. Oh, I'm not I'm you. not one that really likes likes the chit-chat. I was I was telling you a little bit earlier, uh-huh. Cam. Uh, I don't like chit-chat podcasts cuz usually it'll take them forever and a day to finally get to the topic of the podcast cuz mm-hmm. they're too busy talking about what they did that day, all the inside jokes that they're the only two that understand it. What their kids What their kids do right. in school. Mm-hmm. All right. And I mean that's good for them. But that's not what I clicked on the link to listen to. You guys don't waste time. If you, you will do some chit-chat, but it's later in the episode. So well, first, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what our true crime podcast really is, as if the name isn't describing <laughs> enough. So, Jen, okay. Um, so, it's, it's okay. Oh, Cam and Jen, I'm sorry. I, I, I got him. I got him. It's okay. Um, the two of us have been friends since we were 12, so a long, long time. Uh, we went to CrimeCon four years ago, five and years ago. five years ago, and we decided, hey, how hard could it be to do a podcast? We'll do it. Uh, yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> but we, we were struggling with the name, and we were like, what are we going to call our, our True Crime Podcast? What are we going to call our True Crime? And then finally, we were like, let's just call it our True Crime Podcast, because we couldn't think of a name. So we started it. It did the chit-chat thing. Took a while to get rid of that to get right. to where we go. Um, but we've done 400 episodes. No, no four years, I'm sorry. Four, and two, Over 250 episodes. Still, that's, that's mm-hmm. amazing. 
Well, every Christmas we do a special called The Nightmare Before Christmas, yep. where we start 12 days out for Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. and each day has a body count. First day has one body, second day has two bodies. So, like, you, you pick a true crime that had we, that many bodies? Right. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a cool idea. Yeah. I've never heard that you done before. You know who thought that? My daughter, who was 12 at the time, that was her idea. That's a really... Well, number number one, I think your, your daughter might need psychiatric help. I, she does. But uh, other than that, it's a family. great idea. Darren, it runs in the family. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and you, you would think that we would run out. We've done three years now. So if you calculate that, that is a lot. So yeah. you don't use the same stories no. each year. No, 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 no. So on the wow. 12th day, the, the there's 12 victims and one killer. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and down, down, wow. down the thing. And we keep thinking, you know, will we ever run out? But yet we don't. We just kind of sad, but I, yeah. unfortunately, there's a lot to cover. So yeah, I, mean, I can understand you never running out of true crime to mm-hmm. talk about, but to get the specific first day of Christmas, second day of Christmas, that many victims for each day, well, and I to have admit, different stories each right. year, that's that's that's. Interesting. I will admit, for the twelve, it's getting kind of hard to do actually twelve. So sometimes right. we have to fudge and do thirteen, fourteen. Yeah. So it's a baker's dozen. Yeah, yeah, or so, or more. <laughs> well, usually when we do that, it's 12 known victims, but it could be right. give or take yeah. 10 or 13. They're not sure. Yeah, so. He's, well. He was uh, put in jail for 11, but possibly 17 were killed, right. something like that. Yeah. So. Still, and I'm sure that either way, right. even though you don't stay with the actual number verbatim, it's still going to be an interesting story, right. and that's mm-hmm. the whole point anyway. Exactly. So you, you guys have been doing this for two years, you said? Four. We just four celebrated years. our four-year anniversary in July. July okay. 11th, 7-11. Yeah. What made you it. decide to even do it at all? We went to CrimeCon, and we thought it would be fun. We've always liked true crime. Yeah. Um, when we were 12... We're so old that Cable first came to our town when we were about 12. Okay. And she came over to spend the night, and Helter Skelter was on Cable. Ah. And we watched it, and after that, it was Silence of the Lambs on New Year's Eve. It was uh, Unsolved Mysteries, Case... We've always loved so, it. So you've been absorbing this content... Since we were yeah, little. Yeah, forever, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for Christmas, my family would rent uh, uh, The Shining... And we would watch it on Christmas Such Eve. Such a lovely Christmas it's, movie, isn't it's it? Heartwarming. It's a classic. It's, what it is. it's heartwarming. It is. It's the snow, you know, the whole yeah. thing. So the murder. Always, my family <laughs> has always been involved. It's great. You said therapy? Yes, it's deeply engraved in our yeah. in our psyche. But yeah, and so we just thought it would be fun and easy, and it is fun. It's not easy. Right. It, yeah, it does take but a lot of But it's an interesting hobby, and we've done pretty well so far, and we love doing it. So, so has this become your full-time gig now, or is it still uh, a hobby for you? Or? No, I wish. It's still a hobby. Yeah? yeah? But I'm a stay-at-home mom. Cam's a teacher. I'm a teacher. Okay. So, um, oh, all right, so everybody add Cam to the uh, prayer list if you have one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm. Teachers nowadays, you guys do not have it easy. It, it's, it's, it's brutal, let me tell you. It's yeah. not, yeah. So you would rather spend time with the serial killers and, yes. and everything and else at least you know what you're other getting, than the you know? kids. Yeah, yeah, well, usually the kids are okay. It's the parents. Those are the... <laughs> How many of them are named Karen? Well, oh, mm, uh, yeah. All of them? Karen or Kyle. Kyle's the male equivalent. (laughs) So I hear. Don't get mad at me. So do your do your uh, students know that you do this on the side? Actually, uh, this segued into uh, I teach a crime murder class. I only have oh, seniors, yeah. so um, I of course send out a permission slip that they have to sign because we talk about rape, murder, and we cover some of the cases we cover. We mm-hmm. talk about it. Um, last year, I presented uh, 
a case that was a real case, but I hid the hid the things, and I wanted them to create a profile of who they thought would do it. Oh, and then cool. at the end, it's discovered that it's uh, David Carpenter, who was the killer up in Northern California. Uh-huh. So, uh, And then they were like, he, it's real? And I'm like, not only is it real, he is the oldest person on death row in California. And they're like, still? So that's, you know, they're 18. <laughs> so it's just like 91. an extracurricular uh, activity at the no, school? No, they, they get credit for it. They get a language arts credit because we read In Cold Blood, um, choice novels they can pick. Uh, Where was this teacher when I, I was in school? I know. Yeah. We did one of the favorite things for them, which is so funny, and I, I just did it on a whim, fingerprinting. So they get to fingerprint, like I choose one person and they right. do it, and then I make them little cards and take a little mugshot picture of them. Yeah. They love it. They love it. <laughs> so then they loved it so much, I had it laminated, and they, yeah. that, they get to go home with that, and like the parents are like, that's amazing. And I'm like, is it though? It's your child. <laughs> this is what it's going to look like when they're arrested. This is a mugshot. Yeah. When, so. if. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Why did you have to wear that color for your mugshot? Exactly. It makes you look awful. They love it. They giggle. They think it's, and I know that's a little dark humor, but it is, you know, they're kind of getting, yeah. they're well, learning and that's, something. And that's the age that, I mean, the, the horror movies and stuff like that are really, oh, yeah. you know, really oh. popular too. So. And they're starting to figure out, and you know, this, this, I guess, profession now is, you know, they all want to be a forensic psychologist. They want to yeah. go and be a cop. They want to be a, you know, all that stuff. And so it's, and I have had a couple students that have graduated after having this, because mm-hmm. this is my fourth year of teaching this class, and they're now seniors in college, and they're like, I, I'm really doing this, and I'm amazed. I'm like, good for you. That is I so cool. That, so it was cool. You ever thought about uh, doing that online? Like maybe offering it to... I, you know, well, with our podcast that takes up time and right. then teaching, so um, I would love to do this full time, but that just hasn't quite happened. You know what you could do is you could, I, yeah, here I am telling them how to do a podcast, right? Um, but you could do your podcast like on location somewhere, and then afterwards you could do your do your yeah, forensics do class. Yeah, well, I'm every every year the kids are like, "Can we be on it?" Can I go, "You haven't done anything. What are you going to tell? You guys are 17, 18 yeah, Go out and old. kill somebody, <laughs> yeah. and then you can come on to the and podcast because then like, you'd we, be a subject. We can make a fake one. One year yeah. we did. I created a fake murder. It was uh, Jessica, no Victoria Timberlake, and um, I had all the teachers play parts, and they did. I mean, they knocked it out of the park. So the students had to go interview them, and they had to figure out who the killer was. So, like, what are those murder mystery parties you go it to? Is, but it you is. went really in depth. Yeah. With so them. they had a murder book. I gave them the murder book. Caught them all about you know the murder broke and keeping the case filed and detective teams and out of four teams three got it right one was way way out and i'm like <laughs> did you guys talk to the same people so and, and the funny part was the teachers loved it because they were like hey if you do that next year we want to be involved and i'm like uh, okay oh yeah i, I totally want so, to be and they because yeah. i give them a whole thing so you're the angry theater teacher who doesn't have time for anybody and you hate your job right so when the kids go interview them they're like, oh, she was so snotty. And you know what I mean? Like, I gave them little roles to play. You're the meek first-year teacher that's trying to kiss everybody's butt because you want to be the totally cheerleading. I was so, going yeah. to college to become a teacher and because mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted to be, like, an acting teacher, too. Yeah. So I could yeah. totally, I could oh, t- totally see that. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, I know I'm old enough to pick who will do it. I had a student full-on cried, and then all the girls... That, that were the girl detectives were looking at me and I was like is she really and she full on cried for it because she was related she was, to the victim not really of right but she was that good of an actress oh, yeah. that she pulled and it she's off like, I told you I was going to be on Broadway and that was a big laugh and I'm like How you awesome. missed it <laughs> that was we didn't know we were like that's amazing that's awesome so yeah it was pretty good you got to film this sometime I, I really put it, should yeah, you know, like put it onto YouTube I or did. something like well, that well I did have two teachers because I tried to give it up and I said you know there's there's um, videotaped uh, interrogation interview 
interviews, and right. so I did have some do that, you know, and I gave them, the, and it was black and white, so that they, you know, you didn't get to go interview this person because right. they had left town or whatever. So here's your, and that was usually the teachers that didn't really. Man, want I want to be back time. in high school now, just I know, so I can take the cool? class. They like it. They, it's really, and then we, you know, we do in Cold Blood and things like that. So they get uh, right. Ted Bundy, Silence of the Lambs. They can go the fiction route or the nonfiction, and yeah. I mean some non-readers like tear through the Ted Bundy book, and I'm like, wow. Wow, that's the first book I've read since sixth grade. <laughs> wow, really? Okay. How did you get this far in high school then? They just, yeah, so, but, um, so yeah, it's kind of like it, you know, one thing comes it's about fun. from another. So, it's, it, well, it's, so, so it's no surprise then that, you, that you're doing yeah. the Our True Crime right. podcast. Well, then, the then. funny thing about the podcast, here you go. So, as a teacher, I was scared to, we, I said, I, I, can, I don't want to use my real name because we're going to talk about murder and I don't know how that right. will go over. Well, then, so um, we went through these names, and then Jennifer, Jen would keep calling me my name. And then she'd be like, oh, I mean, so then my daughter was like, oh, yeah, Cam and Jen, nobody will figure out it's you guys, because my name's Camille. But okay. I didn't, she couldn't stick, you know what I'm saying? Well, I've known you for 12 years, so it's really hard to go from... It's like, should I go by Della? Should I go by, you know, <laughs> Bonnie? And it was, yeah, so it was, yeah, that was the thing. So it's Cam and Jen, and here we so, are. So those are your real names? Then. Yeah. Okay. All right. My daughter. So you're a you're a stay at home mom then, Jen? Yes, I am. All right. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, what are what are the ages? Sixteen of yours? and fourteen. Okay. Both girls. Oh. Yeah. So that's my own horror story right yeah. there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, as, as great as everybody would think it would be to have teen girls. So no, this, they this, are wonderful kids. Does it make it easier now that they're teenagers that you can sit down and record? Oh yeah, once it was easy. I have a wonderful husband, and I, I know that's cheesy to say, but he like. When they were out of hand or whatever, younger, he would take them out when we would record. He mm-hmm. would make sure everybody kept quiet. Sometimes my 13-year-old or 14-year-old only wants to vacuum when we record. It seems like that's the only time, but, you know. I would be thankful that they wanted to vacuum. <laughs> right? It doesn't help with the sound quality of the podcast. But, yeah. No, it's it's pretty easy. They every Once and again, they'll stick their head out and say, I'm going to go to Embers. And, you know. But other than that, it's, no, it's easy. You ever have the kids on the podcast? We did, with the 12 Nightmares of Christmas. We had them, mine, yours, we had them introduce it. It Mm -hmm. was kind of cute. Oh. Yeah. My kids are so embarrassed that we have a podcast. Like, just embarrassed. I was at the grocery store, and I wear my uh, Our True Crime Podcast t-shirt. Right. All the time. As you should. And I was at the grocery store with my 14-year-old, and somebody made a comment, and is like, oh, I really like your podcast, or I like that podcast, I listen to it. And I'm like, oh, thanks, I'm Jen, and blah, blah, blah. And then my daughter's like, oh, my God, you just got noticed. I'm embarrassed, you know. And, and I'm like, it's cool. Isn't it cool? And she's Don't like, kids right, always, mom, always think, I, I wish my my dad was Brad Pitt or something <laughs> like that. Well, you've got the you've got the celebrity mom now, and Not, now suddenly well, you don't want it. Celebrity is well, kind of an over well, it's minor celebrity. Yeah, I mean, you're Very minor. It's like People say I'm a celebrity G. too. I don't. Yeah. I don't get it. I, yeah. sorry, that's just not. That word doesn't really no. apply to me. But no. I understand. What, but for your local area, or for, for that I mean, minute, it's, it's I felt like that, a, a celebrity. Yeah, you've got yeah. a worldwide podcast. I mean, you can listen to it anywhere in the world. Right. And for somebody in your local neighborhood to suddenly just yeah, say, we're hey. really big in Malta. I was just going to say, <laughs> big in Malta. Tune in, Malta, Illinois. No, Malta, Malta, the country. The country, Malta. Oh, the country yeah. of Malta? <laughs> we, were, we were like, what language do they... We don't even know don't, what language they yeah. speak, but apparently we're big there. Yeah, geography's not our strong point. I don't know where Malta yeah, is. Yeah, I don't either. That's why I said Malta, Illinois. I think it's an yeah. island, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I know that they like, film, film movies there once in a while. Yeah. That's all I know. No, but we yeah, have I, a, a fairly large uh, following in England, Netherlands, Australia. Philippines. Uh, Philippines. Philippines. Yeah. Okay. Oh, 
I've nothing to say to that. I have I, no, 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 no. There's We don't either. No we don't either. No rationale. Yeah. Nope. No, there is. Well, we don't even know. That's kind of our podcast. There's no rationale. It's kind of a little podcast that tries. That's our nickname. Or if Dumb and Dumber got a podcast, we say that too. Because we're just kind of figuring it out as we go. Yeah. yeah, it is. We, it is strange because I mean, you're obviously an English-speaking podcast, and so if somebody are looking for podcasts, I would think the English ones would come up first. And yet, you have all of these countries that don't speak English, and yet they're and finding. Maybe they're trying you. to learn English. I, we're not I don't the know. ones to. But do we've, that had, we've had people from non-English speaking countries send us an email and say we really and I'm like that's amazing. But I know that a lot of people, English you know, they is, they yeah. speak. They learn English in sure. schools where we don't necessarily do that. But it's it's always so thrilling to have, like, Norway send us a note. It's, um, I don't know. It's we're fun. still nerds. You read your emails on the, on no. the podcast? Mm-mm. No. okay. We should. No, but we should. Yeah, this one comes from Malta. We can't understand the language. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to try to put it out phon- uh, phonetically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true. So, yeah. well... Thank you very much for stopping by. Thank you for having us, Karen. It was so nice to meet you. I was so excited you were going to be here. I really the hardest wor- working man Jen in podcast. I am not a liar. Hardest working man in podcast. Every day. Are you Every kidding me? darn day. Uh, okay. We All right. can't get it out. Once I, it's a little early. easier for me because I'm I'm not a stay at home mom. I'm not a teacher. I don't have kids. Yeah, but you. So. But it's still, still hard a lot to of come work. up with content every day. It's yeah. hard. And so. edit it. Good thing we love our jobs, right? Yeah, exactly. It's tough, yeah. man. So, so is there anything you want people to know about your podcast before I let you go? Obviously, we want to know where, you, where they can find you. We, we are on we are on Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, Apple, Google, you YouTube. name it, we're on there. YouTube. We're on YouTube. Okay. Uh, Podbean, Spreaker. So, yeah, wherever yeah. podcasts wherever, are, it, you, it, you're there. Yeah, yeah. we are there. Because you're part of Spreaker. Yes. Yeah. You're with Spreaker. So, yeah, Spreaker like does a great job of making right. sure that, that, yeah. that they're everywhere. And we yeah. have uh, new episodes drop at 4 o'clock every Wednesday. It's 4 o'clock Central Time. Yeah. St. Louis, Missouri. Repping the loo. Very rarely <laughs> do we miss that. So, yeah. So, mm-hmm. all right. But so, well, you record them in advance, but you yeah. make sure that they drop at 4 p.m. Central yep. every Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, well, at least now I, know, now I know when to look for new episodes. Yeah. All right. All right. Ladies, uh, and do you have a website? Yep, our true crime podcast.com. No, uh, gmail.com. Yep. No, that's our email. See, that's I'm your sorry. Email. See, I'm our true crime right. podcast at gmail.com. Okay. Yeah. Our, all right, no, all right, hold on now. All right, so our true crime podcast.com uh-huh. for the website. But if you want to drop, if the people want to drop you an email, our true crime podcast at gmail.com. Right. Okay, there we go. And, we're all, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, folks, so yeah. that way so that way you know where to find them. But Jen, Cam, thank you thank very you. much. I'm really Great. glad that I met you yesterday. I was able so to, to be introduced to your podcast. I really like it, and I'll, I'll be continuing to listen. We take that as a huge compliment. Yeah, well, thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much, thank ladies. You. Bye, everybody. All right. Now, go, go spread the word about your podcast. <laughs> go. Get So much fun. Those, those two ladies are just adorable. <laughs> Welcome back to Weird Darkness. I'm Darren Marlar, and we are broadcasting live at the Dark History and Horror Convention here in Champaign, Illinois. That's where I met the young ladies uh, from our True Crime podcast and also from Southern Goth- Gothic Brandon over there. Uh, great people. You really want to you really want to check out their podcasts. So let's continue with our uh, we have a couple more stories left. Oh, actually, more than, than a couple stories left. So we'll continue on with this one. It's the vanishing around the Azores. The Azores is a chain of islands in the Atlantic Ocean. It's about 100 miles west of Portugal. And among sailors, this region is considered a dangerous place that's under the control of unknown forces. 
Some are even afraid to cross these waters. However, it's not superstition that is the cause of people's fear, but strange and disturbing events that occurred here. When people associate a place with unpleasant events, they tend to avoid it, but sometimes it's not always possible. There are many documented cases of people who mysteriously vanished into thin air. Science can often shed light on several strange vanishings, but there are also events that cannot be easily explained. We'd be ignorant if we couldn't admit that there are many aspects of the physical world that we are unfamiliar with, and this is also why we often find ourselves interested in the unknown. As Albert Einstein once said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It's the source of all true art and science. He to whom the emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. This topic is a phenomenon that can hardly be called a coincidence. During the course of 11 days, several boats were found drifting in the Azores, a region that even today remains shrouded in mystery. The weather was calm, boats were in excellent condition, but without a single person aboard. What happened to the crew? It was as if they had mysteriously vanished from the earth. During one of the last transmissions, one of the persons who disappeared stated that he couldn't help himself because he was under the influence of the cosmic brain. Well, what could this mean? Was the crew member delusional, or did some unknown force affect his way of thinking? On June 30, 1969, the British ship Maple Bank discovered a 60-foot unidentified yacht floating upside down. Little attention uh, attention was paid to the incident, seeing there was no reason to suspect something out of the ordinary had taken place. A few days later, on July 4th, another British ship discovered a second unidentified yacht. There was no person aboard, but the yacht was still underway with its automatic rudder in operation. It didn't take long before the strange incident was reported. Two days later, on July 6th, the Golar Frost, a Liberian ship, found the Vagabond. The yacht belonged to the sailor William Wallen, but he was not on board. In fact, once again, the yacht was empty. Three yachts with no crew were found in one week. Sounds a little too odd to be a coincidence, and yet this was just the beginning of the mystery. On July 8th, the British tanker Halisoma came across a 40-foot yacht. There was no sign of the crew. On July 10th, the Tynemouth Electron was discovered floating empty. The yacht belonged to Donald C. Crowhurst. In 11 days, five empty yachts were found in the Azores. What did these peculiar incidents have in common? How can we explain these strange disappearances that took place in the Azores region back in 1969? It'd be wrong to blame the weather, because the weather conditions were excellent at that time of the year. So what happened to the crew? Both William Wallen and Donald C. Crowhurst were experienced sailors. The crew of the three other yachts was unidentified. The case of Donald C. Crowhurst is somewhat different, but it might offer some clues to the disappearance. Crowhurst participated in a race around the world sponsored by the London Sunday Times. He was one of the favorites. His ego prevented him from accepting the, uh, the thought of losing, so he perpetrated a hoax. He sailed to a point 700 miles west of the Azores and stayed there. Then he sent periodic messages to the BBC, describing his progress and whereabouts. He told that 
he had just rounded the Cape Horn, and then the Cape of Good Hope, and later he declared that he was on his way back to England. Crowhurst managed to deceive the press for a long time, but everything ends at some point, and so did his deception. On June 24, 1969, Crowhurst received a message that he'd be met at the islands of Sicily and interviewed by the BBC. A welcome committee was even there waiting for him. Crowhurst must have understood that he'd lost the game there. He decided not to send any more message, but he wrote the truth in his logbook. What happened next, however, remains unclear. Crowhurst stayed on his yacht in the Azores. His log indicated that something was keeping him there. Crowhurst spoke of God and a world system in which he was under control of a cosmic brain. On June 30th, he finished by saying that he'd made up his mind to die. He was at peace now when the truth had been revealed. When his yacht was discovered on July 10th, Crowhurst was not aboard the boat. His body was never found. What did Crowhurst mean when he said that he was under the control of a cosmic brain? Were these the words spoken by a delusional man, or was he under the influence of some unknown external force that somehow prevented him from leaving the region? The Azores mystery lacks a rational explanation. If all the crew members had drowned, their bodies should have been discovered. But no corpse has ever been found. The question remains, what happened to the crew? Why was no one aboard the yachts? There are many stories of people who vanished mysteriously without any trace. In the recent years, more and more scientists have proposed parallel universes as a solution to many unsolved mysteries. Our world can be surrounded by a number of parallel worlds that exist next to our own and are invisible to the naked eye. These parallel worlds are just as real as our own world. It's possible there is specific locations near the Azores that serve as an invisible opening leading to another, dim to another dimension. Perhaps the crew of the yachts disappeared from our world and entered a parallel universe governed by dimensions and physical laws unknown to us. After all, there are other laws and forces at work in the universe, operating on a deeper level than the one that we are currently aware of. What really happened near the Azores in 1969 is a mystery that remains unexplained. An enigma spanning thousands of years. The Green Man is a symbol of mysterious origin and history. Permeating various religious faiths and cultures, the Green Man has survived countless transformations and cultural diversities, enduring in the same relative physical form to this day. Although specifics about the beginnings and his worship are not fully known, due in large part to how far back and to what initial cultures he can be traced to, it's a testament to the widespread reach of his character that he is still remembered and worshipped to this day. The Green Man is most highly believed to have begun as a pre-Christian entity, a spirit of nature personified as a man. His earliest images have been dated long before the coming of the Christian religion, depictions dating back before the days of the Roman Empire. However, it's with the coming of the empire that his images are noted as spanning religions, as he's been both as he's uh, been found both within the empire at its borders and then similar versions in other far-outreaching cultures, such as India. Despite the range and locations of artifacts of the Green Man, 
he is most often associated with the Society of the Celts, sequestered particularly in today's Britain and France because of the high number of images found in those regions and the stylized way in which he's been portrayed. The Green Man is almost always depicted as a man's face, usually ranging from middle-aged to elderly, appearing out of the wild of forest trappings. His face is always encompassed by leaves, vines, and flowers, seeming to be literally born from the natural world. However, the slight variations on his images come from the exact way in which the natural world explodes around him. It's common for the Green Man to merely be surrounded by the greenery, hence the name the Green Man. But there have been archaeological finds of images in which the leaves and vines emanate from his mouth, ears, and other facial orifices, as well as depictions of his face made up entirely of nature, facial lines carefully crafted as vines with his skin, the very leaves themselves. Because of these depictions, the Green Man is believed to have been intended as a symbol of growth and rebirth, the eternal seasonal cycle of the coming of spring and the life of man. This association stems from the pre-Christian notion that man was born from nature, as evidenced by various mythological accounts of the way in which the world began, the idea that man is directly tied to the fate of nature. It is the natural changing of seasons that presents the passage of time that ages man, thus by depicting the green man in such a way that overwhelmingly illustrates man's relationship with nature highlights the idea to worshippers that one cannot survive without the other. This union with nature and mutual reliance upon one another is evidenced historically thereby, uh, and archaeologically through man's cultivation and development of the natural world and the fruits nature, uh, nature thereby provides. Man was predominantly reliant on nature until recent centuries, so the green man, as an expression of this close of a relationship, also seems likely and a fairly powerful message. Along with rebirth and reliance, there is one more powerful affiliation the images of the green man undoubtedly indicate. With the cycles of the year comes the end of the year, with the cycles of life coming to the end of life and with the excessive use of nature comes the eventual end of nature. The Green Man's other important, powerful affiliation, then, is that of death and of endings. A fair amount of images of the Green Man have been found on graves. His face, an empty skull rather than a flourishing man, once again made out of, made out of or exploding with greenery. Though there is no physical farce, Archaeologists and art historians have expressed widespread belief that this is another mask of the Green Man, uh, linked, as stated above, by the logical cycle of man. What makes the Green Man green, after all, is the sign of nature that espouses from him, whether it is coming out of his face or designing his face. Thereby, these skull and crossbone depictions can logically be linked to this pre-Christian entity. The symbol of the Green Man can be summarized in the three R's rebirth, reliance, and ruin. Archaeological records uh, link the Green Man to these three notions, most evidently because of the three most important moments of time they represent, whether it's the life and death of nature, man, or the two affecting one another. It should be understood that much of what's known about the Green Man is speculation, as mythological records are not utilized as hard evidence, but rather as examples of the belief system of pre-existing cultures. Nevertheless, these speculations are 
very likely. Up next on Weird Darkness, in 1898, reports of a brutal killing surfaced in Ontario, Canada. And it was only then that the settlers finally began to believe what the local Algonquin tribe had been telling them about the Wendigo. Thanks for listening to Weird Darkness. Uh, I am broadcasting live, so obviously I sound a little bit different today. It's because of all of the background activity that's taking place around me. Uh, I'm at the Dark History and Horror Convention in Champaign, Illinois. And so all of the noise you hear are people visiting the vendors, visiting the artists, getting tattoos done meeting celebrities, uh, going and uh, making their way uh, out the door to go see uh, certain speeches that are taking place. Uh, there's just, there is so much activity going on here that you want to, ta- that you want to uh, take a look at. We're out here until 7 p.m. tonight, so as of this recording, you still have about five hours if you want to come out. If you're somewhere in the Champaign, Illinois area, you can come out, see us, uh, have fun. I've got my table of freebies as always, so I've got my keychains, my phone stands, buttons, uh, stickers, pens, um, magnets. Uh, I've, I've got it all with me, as always. And if you look around, you'll also see the Weird Darkness Weirdo Wagon out there as well. I think we finally came up with a with a final name. The Weirdo Wagon, I mean, uh, there's there's no way I can get away from calling it that. It's more than like 83% of you uh, have voted for, for that to be the name. So I, I think it's going to stick. Until reports of murder in Cat Lake, Ontario in 1898 surfaced in Winnipeg, few settlers knew about the Wendigo, the worst kind of evil spirit in Algonquin folklore. To the ancient Algonquin, which includes Cree, Ojibwe, and Blackfeet of old, Wendigo was known by many names such as Chenu, Octon, Witiku, and Kiwak. In January, Manitoba Provincial Police officers arrested two members of the village of No Treaty Cree at Lac Sur for killing their chief. I will try to pronounce the name of the chief. It's Awasakamik. Awasakamik. I'm probably butchering that, but that's close. The chief claimed that he'd been invaded by Wendigo and, bega- and begged four villagers to shoot him. Awasakamig lifted his right arm and showed us where to shoot, said one of the men through an interpreter. The chief's body was taken to the edge of the village, covered with brush and destroyed by fire. The two men who who, uh, complied with his wishes were later convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to four months in jail. Back then, the justice system in northwestern Ontario was the responsibility of Manitoba. The sacred legends of the Sandy Lake Cree, as told by Carl Ray and James Stephen, claim the demented Wendigo is the most horrible creature in the land of the Cree and Ojibwe. Legend claims a Cree village at Sandy Lake Ghost Post was destroyed by fire caused by a Wendigo, which was once a normal human who was taken over by a savage, cannibalistic spirit. When the ugly creature attacks, it shows men no mercy. This monster will kill and devour its own family members to satisfy its lust for human flesh. 
The first report of a Wendigo in Manitoba occurred at Norway House in 1913 when a young Cree woman became delirious and began speaking in a language unknown to her family and friends. According to legend, the superstitious Cree hanged the woman from a tree and buried her body under a pile of rocks to prevent the Wendigo from escaping and invading other villages. The story ran rampant through the fur trade, but despite a long investigation, no charges were laid by the RCMP. At Lac Larone in northern Saskatchewan, an insane man is said to have beaten his wife and child to death with a club. The village voted to stake the man naked in the bush to be stung to death by mosquitoes. To make sure Wendigo did not remain, the village was burned and the people moved. Mountains also received, oh, Mounties, that is, also received word that a father compelled his daughter to chop off his head after he claimed to have been invaded by the Wendigo. The legend claimed the father sharpened his axe, took his daughter into the woods, and commanded her to cut off his head. When she refused, she was threatened with death. If you don't kill me, I shall kill all of you. A Wendigo has come into me, and I must do what he tells me. He tells me that you must kill me to stop me from killing you and your brothers and sisters, the man is said to have told his daughter. When the man placed his neck across a log, the daughter chopped off his head. The demented man was buried with his head by his side in order to trap the Wendigo. The log used as a chopping block was set on top of the grave and covered with stones. Other legends claim the bodies of people invaded by Wendigo were chopped into pieces because of the belief that if the evil spirit was abused, it might think twice about entering another human. The last reported Wendigo sighting in Manitoba occurred in January 1934 at Lac Rocher, 325 miles north of the Pas. The RCMP dispatched Sergeant Percy Rose to investigate after reports that a man had been left outside to freeze to death. The story goes that the victim became violent and abused his fellow trappers as they returned to base camp located about 40 miles north of Reindeer Lake. Mounties were told that the man became so violent that his companions were forced to tie the man to his sled for the trip home. The party was so afraid that the man had been invaded by a Wendigo, they left him tied to his sled overnight and he froze to death. RCMP also heard the leaders of the party left the demented man tied to his sled because they feared Wendigo would enter the shelter and invade their bodies. No reports of charges could be found of this incident. There have been no recent sightings of a Wendigo, but that doesn't mean that one's not ready to take on the form of a half-beast, half-man, and again, begin to feast on human flesh and blood. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know who loves the paranormal or strange stories, true crime, monsters, or unsolved mysteries like you do. And please leave a rating and review of the show in the podcast app you listen from. You can also email me anytime with your questions or comments through the website at weirddarkness.com. That's also where you can find all of my social media, listen to free audiobooks that I've narrated, shop the Weird Darkness store, sign up for the email newsletter to win prizes that I give away every month, find other podcasts that I host, and find the Hope in the Darkness page if you or someone you know is struggling with depression or dark thoughts. 
Plus, if you have a true paranormal or creepy tale to tell, you can click on Tell Your Story or call the Dark Line toll-free at 1-877-277-5944. That's 1-877-277-5944. All stories in Weird Darkness are purported to be true unless stated otherwise, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Vanishings Around the Azores is by Ellen Lloyd for Ancient Pages. Kidnapped by Sasquatch is by Lauren Coleman for Cryptomundo. The Albert Osman Bigfoot Abduction was written by John Green from the book Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us. Horror of the Wendigo was posted at Sea News. The Blind Maiden was written by Christina Skelton. Inside the Molly Maguires is by Genevieve Carlton for All That's Interesting. And Digging Into the Roots of the Green Man was written by Riley Winters for Ancient Origins. Again, you can find links to these stories in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a production and trademark of Marler House Productions. Copyright Weird Darkness 2022. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Psalm 1, verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And a final thought. I salute those people who smile despite all of their problems. I'm Darren Marlar, broadcasting live from Champaign, Illinois, at the Dark History and Horror Con. And you can find out more information about the con, what's going on here. We're going to be here until 7 p.m. Central Time tonight, August 20th. And you can find that information on the events calendar at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness.